So I'm not sure about your experience growing up in the church or if you grew up in the church, but I grew up uh, in a particular church experience, as we all do. Um, and my church was very clear about a wide variety of things. We knew what a Sunday service would look like and what a time that Sunday service would end at, the exact second that it would end at. Uh, we also knew how the world apparently would end. Um, one thing that kind of confused me, though, was this whole kingdom of God thing. It kind of sounded like the, the Campbell's ad that we just saw. There were some different opinions around, and they kind of seemed pretty much opposite of each other. You see, the church that I grew up in was a particular kind of Baptist church, and we were very clear about what the end of the world was, what the end times would look like. And so on Sunday night, our pastor would have this big slideshow on his overhead projector. And at the end of that slide, at the end of Revelations, after all these crazy things, there was this big text that said, the kingdom of God. It sounded pretty simple. And so I learned that when we prayed, your kingdom come, this is what we were talking about. I learned that when we prayed this, it was kind of like uh, we were praying that the rapture would happen soon so that we could get on with the great tribulation and the Armageddon and all these crazy things so that God's kingdom could finally come. And so it was kind of like praying, your kingdom come, was like as a child asking, are we there yet in the car? Or, um, yeah, asking if we could just skip to the good part of the movie or the book or whatever when everyone lives happily ever after. And so we had scripture to back this up. I mean, Jesus himself said this in what is probably his most frequently quoted passage when he says um, in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer that your, your kingdom come, right? This makes sense. His kingdom's got to come. It, if it's still coming, it hasn't come. And so we would also look at passages like 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 24 through 26. And... Uh, where Paul says, after that, the end will come when he will turn, he being Jesus, will turn the kingdom over to God, the Father, having put down all enemies of every kind. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. So let's start out by calling this the fork understanding of the kingdom of God. The other perspective that I was exposed to through friends and classmates at my Christian school were decidedly of an Anabaptist background. Those of you who have spent any time on the prairies, and particularly in southern Manitoba, have probably bumped into these people who grew up in church backgrounds um, that have names that I'm way too English to pronounce. Um, these are people who didn't speak English as their first language until they went to... Uh, elementary school because they learned the biblical language of low German at home. Uh, and they were very quick to, to remind me that I was not as biblically well-versed as they were because I didn't speak low German. Uh, for these people, the kingdom of God had already come. And it seemed very different from that chart that, that my, my pastor would show us. So they would talk about the kingdom of God as having its foundation in Jesus but for, for them, it wasn't waiting for this giant trumpet blast. But it went everywhere that they went. For these people, the kingdom of God was why they did so many things in, the, in their lives. The, it's why they would serve the poor and the needy. And for, later I would learn that this is what's called the, their ethical grounds for living. 
These Anabaptists would go out and help the poor and marginalized in our community. They would talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus and would quote verses like Luke 17, 21, when Jesus clearly says, the kingdom of God is among you. And then there's also that earlier passage in Mark where Jesus says, truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, my friends were pretty smart. They'd say, hey, Tyler, when was the last time you saw Peter, James, or John walking the earth? And I'd say, why, I haven't. And then they'd say, well, then the kingdom's here, right? The kingdom's come in power. So maybe it's just the easiest to call these people the spoon people. For these people, the kingdom of God was something that already existed and was established in Jesus' coming. Now, to me, these, these, kingdom, or these two concepts of the kingdom seemed radically different from each other and almost irreconcilable. And while these are just, may seem like just ideas, the differences between them uh, played out in how these two groups lived their lives and lived their faith out. The fork people would oftentimes just convince people to come to church to get saved and to wait for for this whole thing to blow over and for God to come and save us from, from the sin around us. On the other hand, the spoon people would go out and, and do great things and, and love people and, and be the hands and feet of Jesus, but sometimes would forget that whole call for transformation, that Jesus was coming to change lives. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I saw one of these Campbell Soup ads in the 90s, and there was a lot of them, this wasn't just the only one, um, I always want to propose a middle ground. I thought it was kind of a silly debate uh, between spoon and fork. I thought I was a pretty smart guy. I said, why doesn't someone just show up with a spork? Now, maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not with this infamous utensil, or at least the idea of the utensil that's half spoon, half fork. It's apparently able to accomplish tasks of both a spoon and a fork. For years, I suggested that the simple uh, solution to this drawn-out argument was someone just walking right into the middle of this whole thing, right into the courtyard of that ad, and saying, spork. <laughs> now, I say legendary because I've only ever seen a spork a couple times in my life. It usually coincided with me being in Taco Bell. Um, so, yeah. At the same time, th through these uh, early confusing years about hearing about the end of the world and the coming of God's kingdom, as well as the kingdom that is around us, deep down I want to find some sort of spork for the kingdom of God. I want to be able to meld these two ideas, which had some very strong biblical support, into one unified, coherent understanding of the kingdom of God. I want to come to an understanding of, understanding of the kingdom of God that was part spoon and part fork. But here's the thing. Sometimes you really need a spoon, and sometimes you just need a fork. And I'm guessing that the reason why all of us don't just have drawers full of sporks is that they don't work nearly as well as the utensils that they were designed to replace. A spork isn't as good of a spoon as a spoon, and it can't poke things nearly as well as a fork. And so it is with the kingdom of God. We can't mesh together these two understandings of the kingdoms and still come... Um, to a truthful, uh, truthful understanding as reflected in Scripture. We have to admit that God's kingdom has not yet come, and yet it appears all around us. Now, these two ideas might seem to be in paradox, 
or contrary to, to each other. And it might seem to, that it's impossible to overcome these tensions. But I think this is the tension that we're meant to live in. This tension or this dialectic that we currently live in is exactly how we are understand, to understand the two kingdoms. The kingdom has been fully established by our King Jesus. And yet we still have to wait for him to fully come and reign, that his kingdom will be manifest around us, to come in its full realization amongst creation. But just because the kingdom has not been fully realized doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in any less real way. The kingdom of God was tr truly established in salvation history, God's work amongst his people. But the kingdom of God yet has not yet reached its fullness. Because of this, God is at work in the world, but his work is far from complete. Now, this might sound like nonsense, or at least truck drivers speak, but it is key, a key theological reality from the history of the church that is supported by biblical texts. And I think that it is helpful at this point to examine what exactly the kingdom of God is. And so, for me, I, I look to Carl uh, Barth. He wrote this really short book on, on, the kingdom, uh, excuse me, on the Lord's Prayer. It's actually short. It's like 65 pages. That's just not me saying that. Um, and so he, he defined the kingdom of God as, as follows. The kingdom of God in the New Testament is both the life and purpose of the world, accordingly as they agree with the intentions of the Creator. It is the officious and definitive shield against the threat which follows and had to, to follow sin against the fatal danger. In this understanding of the kingdom of God, the kingdom is expressed when creation experiences life as it was created to. This means that creation, including humanity, experiences justice and reconciliation, but most importantly, it experiences communion with its creator. The kingdom is present when we experience fellowship, the, the fellowship that we were created for. The fellowship that is first and foremost founded and grounded in God and made possible by God's incarnation in Jesus Christ. This means that when we respond to God's reaching out to us and enter into his fellowship, we are able to exist within the kingdom of God and bring this reality into the world that we live in allowing people to encounter this fellowship with God along with us. But we realize that this, fel that this fellowship um, and this shield is still not complete. Sin still plagues us. Our relationships continue to be fractured and broken, and death still stalks us. And so just to make things more confusing, a little bit later on, Bart goes on to state that the kingdom of God is the final victory over sin, God's kingdom is the justice of God, the justice of the creator, of the Lord, who justifies and triumphs, the end and purpose of the world that is the coming of the kingdom. Now this sounds rather fork-like, right? Kind of one-sided. The kingdom of God is bringing us into contact with the justice that we so barely badly crave. But yet where is it? The kingdom of God is the institution that allows us to fully exist in the purpose that we were created for, with the experience of healing that we so badly crave, healing socially, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And so it seems that we are stuck at an impasse, as if it seems to me, or it seems, seemed to me all those years ago with the fork and the spoon. 
And that there's this massive gap between the kingdom that has come and the, yet the kingdom that has yet to come. That will bring nations to peace and justice. It seems like we are unable to reconcile the gulf between what we know Jesus founded on earth and how scripture describes the life within the kingdom and our experience. And then, and then this only gets more confusing when someone like Bart follows this by saying, uh, with a statement that thy kingdom come is the same as saying thy kingdom has already come. Thou has already established it in our midst. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So what does this mean? It means that these two aspects of the kingdom of God are interconnected and cannot be separated. I think that it is at this point that we have to be honest with ourselves and admit that our problem is one of perspective. Because we are finite creatures who are bound to time. We are bound to a rotation of the earth around the sun. And so we are limited from understanding the vast and sweeping change that God is doing amongst, us, amongst his creation. Our experience is kind of like being on an airplane, I think. I remember when we flew home for Christmas with Alistair at Chris, um, to Winnipeg. I looked out the window and, you know, you're really high. You can tell that you're really high. You're above the clouds. But looking at the side of the airplane, it, you can't really tell that you're going anywhere. The clouds don't seem to move. In fact, as Alistair was like rustling to get run down the aisle, I swear that the plane was going backwards, not forwards. And so it is with us. We're, we, we, lim- we lack the ability to decipher where we've come from and where we're going because of our chronological blindness. When we are able to take a step back from our lives that are bound to the ticking of the clock and the rotation of the earth, to God's perspective, we are able to see the direct parallels and transitions that are grounded in God's work in the Old Testament, the nearness of God in Christ coming to earth, and the reconciliation that God is working out and will complete in our lives. When we, and this is when we will experience death being turned back and we will live in a renewed humanity. I think that one of the best images to describe this existence between the establishment of God's kingdom in Jesus and the coming of it in its fulfillment in his return is in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a point in the book when Aslan has returned and he's foaming, excuse me, forming his army against the evilness that has ruled Narnia for so long. At this point in the story, we haven't seen the giant cat, but we've only heard of him. He has not made his great stand against Jadis, the, the evil one who has enslaved Narnia for so long, but his power is already at work. Aslan is on the move, and the spells that have created an endless winter have been broken. Winter is receding. The never-ending snow has not just stopped, but is already melting, all before we even meet the great cat. The spells have been broken before, but the, the rightful king may not be ruling yet. His presence is already affecting life in Narnia. And so when we take a step back from our chronological blinders, we are able to acknowledge just how much of our lives fall short of what scripture tells us that we are intended to experience in life. But we are also able to understand how much that the kingdom of God has already done in the world around us, has established and has, is fulfilling in our presence. We can't blend these two 
concepts of the kingdom into one unit, but we can't understand them as interconnected. We can't turn the kingdom of God into a spork because we would lose the important parts of both the fork and the spoon. The kingdom that has been established and yet to, to be manifested. We need to understand these two aspects of the kingdom as somehow interconnected. Maybe like salad tongs. I don't know. Maybe this is the, 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 the extent of my, my metaphor and I just need to stop. Um, and, and so I think it's really helpful to look at an explanation that N.T. Wright had um, about the interconnectedness of these two uh, aspects of the kingdom. In his really wonderful book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is both great and groundbreaking and ridiculously long, Wright states that the kingdom of God in early Christian theology uh, works the same way as a bicycle. The rear wheel, the past event, supports the rider's weight where the future hope points in the direction of travel. To ride on the back wheel alone is difficult. To ride on the front wheel alone is downright impossible. If we focus and base our faith on the establishment of God's kingdom in the person and work of Jesus, we will experience a faith journey that is kind of like riding a unicycle. Awkward, unproductive, unrealistic, and dangerous. If we shape our theology and our faith around an understanding of the kingdom of God that is solely based on the future fulfillment of God's kingdom, we'll end up not going anywhere. Because while we know the direction that we are going, we don't have the real world change, the real world power to propel us in this direction. We need to allow God's action in the past to push us forward while being directed by God's promised future action. Maybe this sounds like something similar to medieval theologians who debated how many angels could dance on the head of a pin to you. Information that might sound great at a dinner party, or at least my kind of dinner party, <laughs> but really little importance to a person's life or walk with God. Admittedly, I used to think this. I mean, we all know that Jesus has come and he will come again. So what's the big deal? Holding these two aspects of the kingdom of God um, the fact that the kingdom has come and yet is still to come in tension changes not only our thoughts about the kingdom, but also how we shape our lives um, and how we faith, live out our faith in a day-to-day -day manner. Our theology around the kingdom should change every moment of our lives, and if we give up on one of these two aspects of the kingdom of God, we will miss out on part of the grandeur of life that is the life within the kingdom of God. If we look past the transformational work that God has done and is doing in the world and look only to the wholeness that we will experience in Christ's return, we will inevitably miss out on the joy that God has intended and is bringing into our lives and to f that, that we are also to find in creation. When we look only to Christ's triumphant return and forget about his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, we will take the focus off the, of the very earthly nature of Jesus and the work that God desires to do among us. If we look only to the reality of the kingdom that has come, that Jesus thrust the kingdom of God into the world in a new way, grounded in the promises of God that were made to Abraham and Isaac, and look only to the, uh, we can, uh, and look only to the fulfillment of the kingdom of come, we can become victims of escapism. When we look only to Christ's return, we can draw back and retreat from the evils of the world. Surrendering the world to sin. 
it becomes so easy to give up bringing the good news of Jesus Christ that our world so desperately needs in hopes that we can stay spiritually pure. In these retreats, we as Christians lose influence to expand the kingdom of God and bring people into contact with the transformation, that, which is the love of Jesus. When Christians retreat, they are less likely to love their neighbors near and far because their neighbors are seen to stand behind the wall that separates the future kingdom of God and the present kingdom of the, the world. While we, when we look to the future, we may be able to escape the pain and frustration of living in a world that is not yet fully redeemed, a world that is not as it was created to be, we, we do miss out on the miracles that happen all around us. Now, admittedly, this has happened to me in my own past. See, I was so focused um, growing up on, on my family and, and my, particularly my father's uh, relationship with God, whether he was quote-unquote saved or not, that I missed out on gra- God's gradual work in his life. Over a period of years, God did miraculous things, and I missed those because I was so focused on the end goal. And so one day I woke up, and my dad informed me that he wanted to be baptized and become a member of the church that we attended, which was a huge step. This was something amazing in and of itself, but I missed so many great steps along the way. So, when, on the other hand, when Christians focus solely on the aspects of the kingdom of God, which has already become... Uh, it becomes easy to lose sight of the, uh, excuse me, when we focus solely on the future aspects of the kingdom of God, it becomes so easy to lose sight of the first commandment or instructions that we as humans have received to care for and enjoy his creation. We have seen this play out time and time again when so many Christians on this continent suggest that how we treat the earth is not a spiritual matter, but a financial one. When creation is exploited, instead of being cared for. On the other hand, when Christians overlook the futuristic aspects of the kingdom of God and focus only on what God has done and is doing around us, we lose out on the justice that we so desperately crave and that we will experience uh, once his kingdom has returned. And we can also be drawn into a secularization of our faith. First, when Christians lose sight of the eternal reality of God's kingdom, we lose sight of the justice and the healing that creation will experience in Christ's return. The sick will be healed, the hungry will no longer go without, and the dead will rise. Our brokenness will be healed, and we will experience life as it was intended to. Also, when we lose sight of the eternal realities of God's kingdom, We are unable to contextualize the pain and suffering of our current context within the greater drama of salvation. When we understand our lives as fitting into a greater narrative of God's salvation, which includes eternal salvation, it is not that we overlook our pain and suffering and loss, but we are able to understand it differently. We know that death is not the end and that Christ will reign supreme bringing peace and justice. And so when we become nearsighted in our faith, we lose this contextualization and life becomes short, brutish, and hard. Secondly, when we lose sight of the eternal realities of God's kingdom, our faith can be easily susceptible to secularization. Now, I know these are big words, and 
sorry for even using them. But what this means is that when we remove the supernatural aspect of Christ's return of the kingdom of God, it becomes easy to turn our Christian faith into a simple moral reality. Jesus ceases to be the king of the world who has defeated sin and death and simply stands as a good, good teacher instead and a moral example. Now, he is both of those, but he is more than that. When this happens, our faith becomes a moralism of sorts. Rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts. They may change our lives, but they can't change the core of our being. And it certainly can't change the world. And so this understanding of our faith, of the kingdom of God, can come to stand beside just about any other secular idea. When we remove the spiritual and future aspects of our faith, it becomes so easy to reduce our faith to politics and social activity. When this happens, the church is nothing more than the Lions Club or the Rotary Club. They all do good work, but there should be a fundamental difference at the core of the church. And Jesus' life and teachings are no longer the radical call upon our lives to sacrifice in faith, but instead to become a good person. Admittedly, I gotta admit, balance is difficult. As humans, we want, to see, we want to side with one side or the other. We want to think that one group is right and one group is wrong. And yet, the more time that I spend with Jesus learning about him and the more time that I come to understanding that things are complicated, I learn that they sometimes require balancing, seemingly competing ideas. Thankfully, within this tension, it gives us an understanding of who we are and where we are. Again, looking to what Antiritus said, he says that our future resurrection is closely linked to the dying of self, which must take place in the present. And so our faith, our faithfulness, our dying to ourselves is first and foremost rooted in Jesus' faithfulness. We are only able to be faithful because Jesus was faithful and able to shape our lives to be faithful. As Wright points out, when we are faithful, we are proclaim that Jesus has come and has lived a faithful life. But this faithfulness also points to the future resurrection. Our faithfulness points to not only God's faithfulness on the cross, but that he will be faithful and restore all things in his return. In this dying to self, we are called in scripture to proclaim the faithfulness of Jesus in life and death, which makes possible the self-sacrifice, and it also proclaims our belief that just as God raised Jesus on Easter, we will experience this resurrection when he returns. Now, I'm not sure about you, but for me, I love the lead-up to Easter. As a family, we found great meaning in retelling the story of the Last Supper, uh, enjoying a meal with friends on Thursday evening before Good Friday. Good Friday has always been really special to me, remembering the sacrifice that our Lord and Savior made for us. I mean, Easter, what's not to love about Easter? We celebrate that our God has overcome death and rose from the grave. But often I find myself in a really weird space on Holy Saturday, that day between Good Friday and Easter. It's a day that's connected to both. Uh, you can't separate from Good Friday and you can't connect it from Easter or disconnected from Easter. But yet it stands as, as its own day. To me, Holy Saturday, this day in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, is the best illustration of where we live. 
God has done a miraculous work, but we know that there's more coming. We know that he isn't finished. And so that we can hold on to the establishment of the kingdom of God while we look forward to its fulfillment. So the question is, what does this mean and this need for balance mean in our daily lives? What does it mean to bring the spoons and forks of the kingdom of God as we go about our daily lives? Maybe this means that you bring the ethics of the kingdom to you, uh, with you into your life, knowing that we live in the kingdom which God has established. Maybe this means that you need to work on living out the reality that we are more than just human machines, that we are created in the image of God and that our fellow man is as well. Maybe it means we take a step out and help our, um, those around us or those in need. Maybe it simply means that in June we, we go to House of Hope and help out next time a, church goes, or a group goes from our church. Maybe it means for you the realization that God will bring his kingdom into fulfillment, that God is coming, and that this week it means that you can be hopeful, that the brokenness of our world is not all that there is. It's very easy to live our life based only on what is before us and forget about what Jesus has done in the past and what he will do in the future. Maybe knowing that God is on the move and that his work isn't done means that this week we don't give up on those who need Jesus in our lives. Maybe it means that we don't give up hope that God can work in the lives of those we love and even in our own lives. Maybe God's kingdom, kingdom coming means that we have to surrender ourselves and allow God to be God. Knowing that God has already established his kingdom might mean that we let God build up his kingdom and let go of what we think needs to be done for his kingdom to be fulfilled. After all, it's God's kingdom. He has established it, and he will fulfill it. When we attempt to play God's role, to bring God's kingdom into its fulfillment, either locally or globally, we play God's role. And in in doing so, we create an idol of ourselves as God. Knowing that God has already established his kingdom and that he will fulfill it means that we can let go of attempts to make things better and instead focus on bringing others into the contact with the joy of life within the kingdom. Or maybe you're like me and you need to realize that the establishment of God's kingdom in the past means that our sin, our error, and our foolishness of our history has already been dealt with. We can stop focusing on the failures of our past because God has already overcome our brokenness and so we can look forward to the future of his, of his fulfillment of our salvation. We can find peace in the reality that Jesus has already made us right and that we can look forward to the day when he will make us whole. We don't have to live in the brokenness of our past and we can look forward to living a, the life we were created for. It's at this time that I'm going to ask Caitlin and the band to come forward and our servers. Thankfully, God has given us gifts to help us remember both what he has done and what he will do. One of these gifts is the Eucharist or communion. In this simple act, we, re- we remember what Jesus started on earth. We remember that the king has already come and that everything has already changed. We remember that our Lord has come. 
But in taking part in these simple acts, we also proclaim the future hope that we have. We remind ourselves that one day we will enjoy a feast in the presence of our King. That this simple bread and grape juice is just a foretaste of the feast that is coming in the future kingdom. Jesus is clear about this, that this act is both an act of remembering and a reminder of the future in Luke chapter 22, 15 to 22, when he says, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the, the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine and, again until the kingdom of God has come. Then he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine and said, This is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out for you as a sacrifice for you. So as you come, be mindful of what, both what you are remembering and what you are looking forward to. In this, we proclaim the foundation of God's kingdom as, as well as its fulfillment. If there is something in your past or, or in your future that you would like to pray about, the prayer team will be available on the sides. These are safe people who would love to pray for, for healing for you, for your past, to pray for wisdom for your future, or to simply celebrate your present with you. So come, behold the body of Christ broken for you, Behold what you are and become what you receive.